Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is the podcast where we give you the tools you need to fight for a better future for everyone. The context, straight from the smartest people on Earth, and the action steps you can take to support them. Our guests are scientists, doctors, nurses, journalists, engineers, professors, farmers, politicians, activists, uh, CEOs, astronauts, even a reverend. This is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can email us at funtalk at importantnotimportant.com. You can also join tens of thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com, where we give you uh, the n- most important news items of the week and all the action steps you can take uh, to fix them. So, this week's episode, uh, we're going to try to answer a pretty fundamental question here, and I, I think we did a pretty good job. How do we rebuild capitalism in a world on fire? Um, our guest, uh, we are so lucky to have her here, is Rebecca Henderson. Uh, she is a professor, a research fellow, an expert in about 100 different areas of innovation and organizational change, and uh, she believes the private sector can help save the whole kitten caboodle, um, but it's going to be hard work. Please uh, listen into this very special conversation to find out how identifying purpose can reinvigorate uh, your company and yourself and also reverse the plight of the American worker, small potatoes, um, if not uh, the actual climate crisis itself. Let's go talk to Rebecca. Our guest today is Rebecca Henderson, and together we're going to figure out how to rebuild capitalism. Uh, for the world, for your company, and for yourself. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you, Quinn. I'm honored to be here. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Um, Rebecca, if you don't mind, could you tell us real quick who you are and what you do? I'm a professor at the Harvard Business School, where I developed a course called Reimagining Capitalism, Business and the Big Problems. I have 20 years of research into Um, innovation, technology, and change. I ran the strategy group at MIT. But uh, 10 years ago, I came to Harvard. I was convinced that business needed to do something about the big problems facing our society. And I set out to try and work out what. This April, I published a book called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire, which summarizes what I think I learned about what business can do to make a difference in the world. Well, it's uh, it's pretty timely. It's uh, necessary, timely, and and again, it seems like uh, this past decade was was well spent. the The book is fantastic, um, and I, I really appreciate you sharing it all with the world. Thank you. Awesome. So, Rebecca, and a reminder to everyone: our goal is to provide uh, some quick context for the question at hand, and then we're going to dig into some action-oriented questions and, and what everyone out there can do to uh, to fight the good fight. Uh, Rebecca, um, we do like to start with one question. It's a, a little ridiculous, but it sets the tone. Um, instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, we like to ask, Rebecca, why are you vital to the survival of the planet as we know it? <laughs> I encourage you to be bold and honest. You're here for a reason, figuratively and literally. Because we are in so much trouble And one of the reasons we're in trouble is business has become persuaded 
Too many business leaders have become persuaded that all they need to do is maximize shareholder value. Mm. Um, This may have been true historically, but right now it's a huge problem. So my role on the planet at present is to stand up and say, I'm a professor at the Harvard Business School. I have credentials up the yin-yang. I'm a (laughs) card-carrying neoclassical economist. I'm a member of the Academy of Arts and Sciences in both England and and America. I have the citations and I'm telling you, focusing only on shareholder value is a terrible way to run the company and is going to bring us to disaster. We need to switch. That's my role as I see it. Uh, That's pretty fantastic. It reminds me a little bit of the role uh, of, um, you know, scientists in Hollywood films that try to warn everybody that the wave is coming or the aliens are coming and everyone's going, get out of here, scientist. And then they ev- inevitably show up and he's like, well, I told you so. Sound, sounds sounds right on. Um, so let's uh, dig into this thing. Um, uh, just some, some quick, just contextual thoughts here. Um, I'm not sure if you follow the the incredible journalist Ed Yong over at The Atlantic. Who, who is one of our best science journalists, but also has been doing some incredible work on, on COVID right now. But he, he wrote just this, this truly comprehensive, wonderful, uh, very sad, basically post-mortem on America's institutions this week saying, uh, and I quote, water running along a pavement will readily seep into every crack. And so too did the unchecked coronavirus seep into every fault line in the modern world. And that is to say, I think the virus didn't break us. You know, our, our failing uh, or neglected or in some cases poisoned institutions or runaway institutions have been splitting apart for, for years and, and decades. And the climate crisis uh, came before COVID. It is still here. It is part of what made COVID. And it will be here uh, for long after we're not trapped in our living rooms uh, wearing masks anymore, at least for this virus. But it is very clear, as, as you alluded to, and we'll talk about today, the democracy that we designed here and 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 that have existed in other places and, and the businesses and industries we've built alongside those democracies in partnership with them really just are not, are both not prepared for what's coming, but are also part of what's coming. Um, because inequality among government and businesses and citizens is is drastic and damning and capitalism isn't working for most people. And it certainly is not working for the environment. Our, our never-ending cycle of um, growth and quarterly earnings reports has has destroyed much of the outside world we depend on, and and this is a ticking clock. So this crisis, though, all of these crises mashed, mashed together, right? And and there's about seven of them. Might also be our best opportunity. There there is no market cycle for the foreseeable future as we know it. Um, we can start over, but it's going to have to be top to bottom. And so I do want to talk about rebuilding capitalism for what is the actual 21st century, or as, as Rebecca, you so eloquently put it, for a world on fire. I do want to talk, though, perhaps about the most glaring part of, of our mission here, which is that m- more than ever before, for a lot of folks, capitalism is going very, very well. Uh, the, the markets are, are booming, if a little more volatile than in, in sort of the peak hockey stick era the last 10 years. But they're also fully disconnected from the reality in the ground in a lot of ways. Does that feel correct to you? Yes. I, I feel like I can count on like two or three fingers. Uh, and I know there's been progress made here, but but from, from my perspective, my very limited perspective, the sort of 21st century externalities that are actually priced into our industries and our products and our profit and, and the stock prices, 
I think despite the past 10 years of growth, I, I would bet that there's a huge percentage of people, especially young people, that are pretty shocked at the way the markets ha- have performed in the age of climate and, and COVID, but, but maybe they shouldn't be. Rebecca, if I had told you six months ago that uh, a minimum of whatever it is today, 700,000-ish people would be dead across the world from a perfect virus, from a pandemic that's locked in our homes, where would you have expected the market to be in reaction to that? I would have expected it to fall. Um, I think what's happening in the market is extraordinary. My personal belief is it reflects two dynamics. One is the belief that governments around the world will do everything they can to keep finance alive and afloat. So we won't have um, a massive credit crunch. Mm-hmm. Second, that we're pumping enormous amounts of money into the economy. And Mm. we did so, I mean, we had a massive tax cut in this country at Mm -hmm. a time when we were booming. I mean, where is that money going? So I think part of what's going on is uh, simple asset inflation. And and this is old-fashioned, but I think this might be a speculative boom. I really do. Markets are so irrational. Um, I can't comment on the valuation of any particular company, but those companies I know well, when I look at their expected cash flows, even under fantastic scenarios, I don't see them connecting to the valuations we're seeing. Mm. So um, I'm reminded of what was that great phrase in 2008? I know prices are too high, but as long as the music plays, I have to play too. Sure. I, I think we're in for a crash. It's pretty daunting. And and obviously, I mean, the market has seen so many cycles over the past 100 plus years, but it is incredible sort of what these big five tech companies are doing to carry, for example, the S&P these days. And and there really are sort of black holes sucking up everything around them in this in this just in, in incredible cycle of, yes, like practically more of us are, are, are spending time and money and energy online because we're trapped at home and also because it's 2020. But at the same time, uh, it's it's truly incredible. And and thinking about those companies, for example, I mean, look to be to be candid, right? I'm I'm all for completely reforming capitalism and and the markets and the modern worker, and and I really want to talk about that worker today, but it's clearly a problem that's too big for capitalism alone, and and I believe those companies have have failed to prove they're capable of of self regulating themselves into even incremental progress. I mean, government is required, but a, a very different government uh, that is younger and more flexible and adept and understands uh, the externalities that are that are happening. But it seems like if, I mean, if if capitalism is a ship that's difficult to turn around, government, it feels like it hit the iceberg six hours ago, right? Well, that that's not fair. You know, when I give your speech, when I say we won't rebuild our society without strengthening government, that we need a democratic, transparent, accountable, mm-hmm. capable government, people look at me and say, well, that's what not government is. But but what we're seeing right now is the result of a sustained attack over, you name it, 30, 40, 50 years on government sure. as the problem. Sure. 
and a flood of money, um, uncontrolled money, continually stressing that no government is evil, government is wrong. And mm -hmm. I mean, you see it most clearly in the most recent administration, which appears to be actively trying to destroy the state. Sure. Um, what was the famous Reagan quote? <laughs> if if the if someone knocks on the door and says it's the government here to help, you know you're in trouble. Something like that. The the ten most dangerous words in the English language. Right, I'm right, from right. government. Am I here to help? Yes, yes. I mean closely followed with we need to drown government in the bathtub. So we are in the grip of a movement which has decided that government is the enemy, which has systematically starved and attacked it. And so it's no wonder that it's not working terribly well. Um, but the good news is we have models of government that work. It's sure. not that we don't know what needs to be done and how it could be done. Um, it requires a massive political and cultural movement to get it mm -hmm. going and the efforts of millions of us working as hard as we can. But 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 we can do it. And, and I can't resist adding to this. It's been a mistake, even if you're a business person. I mean, sure. <laughs> you know, I, I think for individual business person, the idea that we just cut taxes, get rid of government, get rid of regulation. I mean, it sounded wonderful. I, I have 25 years of corporate board experience. I mean, you know, right. it, it sounds fabulous. But it turns out that if everyone does that, it crashes the entire system. And I'm meeting more and more business people who can see that. Well, I think it's interesting. And and I mean, you talked, uh, I, I'm trying to remember, and I apologize if it was in one of your, your papers or your book about how, how only... Uh, I think it was one third of young Americans and Brits feel it's necessary to live in a democracy. But uh, I mean, as you just pointed out, because this assault on government has been happening for 30, 40 years, the the, the people that have been uh, assaulting it and the people from the inside with this administration have not only assaulted it, they have they've changed it to the point where, I, I mean, I don't think these young people that feel it's necessary to live in a democracy, I don't fault them because they're they're not really living in a democracy at this point as it's traditionally defined, it, right? Exactly. And, and the mean, apparatus that they they pay taxes to doesn't actually do anything for them, especially if you're a, I mean, if you're a black or indigenous person in America, I mean, forget it. Well, I think this is so important. You know, 70% of Americans said before COVID that the system was rigged against them. Right. Um Wow. The statistic is 25% of people under 30 think democracy is not necessary. But what they think of as democracy is a system that has delivered nothing. You know, sometimes when I'm hanging out with my other Cambridge pointy-headed liberal friends and they're ragging on the Republicans, I say, and what did the Democrats do? What do the Democrats do for the white working families in Ohio? We sure. talked a lot about race and social. What did we actually do? Could we go over that again? Yep. I mean, I think we're all complicit in this. We're all complicit in this lovely fantasy that if we only made the economy big enough, everyone would benefit. I mean, there have always been people standing on the sidelines, jumping up and down, screaming about structural reform, but it, it was sure. so easy to ignore them. What COVID has done is, is make it so clear that that we can't just keep going in this way. And uh, no, I mean, we need a real democracy where people have real facts, real votes, and everybody gets to participate. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I want to come back to that that. <laughs> That notion, uh, as it is now, of of everyone getting a vote and everyone participating, because uh, I, there there I, I I firmly believe uh, that there are more forces at work against the average American young American voter than than they realize, and 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 I want to get into that. Let's talk about 
sort of one of the guiding principles, as I could tell, of of sort of your thesis, maybe the North Stars that that change in business, and certainly government requires a purpose and and direction. But as someone who's worked at a number of uh, big and small companies uh, and seen mission statements uh, that that really are just a mashup of of synergy and other corporate words, it, it feels like purpose or these statements need to pass muster in in the in the twenty first century as we look forward. Whatever this newfound purpose is that someone uses, to me, needs to be practical, practical and and tangible and something that is achievable and and measurable, right? But not in just some internal way, but for for the public good. Um, and so that makes me think of sort of these the standardized um, measurables that that uh, have come out in the past twenty years and are slowly being picked up, like ESG and things like that. Where are these being standardized and accepted? I, I guess what's working, what's not, and, and please tell me all the ways I'm wrong about uh, the idea of the of the more practical purpose. And you're not wrong at all. My measure of my first test of whether a company is authentically purpose driven is whether it's expensive. That is, are they spending real resources to do the right thing? Are they making the tough choices? Are they investing in the future? Otherwise, it's just fluff and words. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here to tell you that that's easy to do. It's I, I spent 20 years studying corporate change. I mean, I mm-hmm. spent a year trying to persuade Nokia that Apple was an important threat, and you can see how well that worked. But <laughs> sure. um, So I know how tough it is to switch to move organizations. So, you know, this, this is a difficult lift, but it's completely possible. There are firms that are there. The only way we'll keep them there and get more there is if we measure what they're doing. If they have clear metrics that are, yes, linked to public benefit as well as to profit, and if those measures are replicable and um, auditable. So absolutely, that's where we need to go. What's happening on that front? Well, I think depending on how you think about it, it's either a hopeless cacophony or a new world waiting to be born. Um, <laughs> it depends on the day. It depends on the day. You know, I, I say in my book, I, I didn't realize that accountants were the, the people that are, hold the key to the future of civilization. The whole thing, right? But they really do. I mean, this is super important. So, so here's the good news. It took at least 100 years to get financial accounts to the place where they are now. You know, in the 20s, when P&G published their annual report, they said, well, our uh, revenues were 20 million and our profits were 340,000. And if you're an investor and you want to know more, you're welcome to apply at our office in Cincinnati in person. You know, we take for granted financial accounts, but in fact, they're, they're, you know, the outcome of years and years of fighting and trying and measuring and improving. And so I think the really good news is you pick a number, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people, including all the major accounting firms, but a whole bunch of other people are working this problem as hard as they can. It's clear that it's absolutely critical that without it, everything else is just talk. It's not easy, but we're seeing groups like SASB, um, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which is going mm-hmm. industry by industry, working with firms, trying to identify the right metrics, testing them out. We're seeing initiatives like the uh, Impact, um, oh, 
It's at the Harvard Business School. It's run by one of my closest friends, and it's called something like the Initiative to Do Impact Measures. But it's it's a collection of all the great ac- academics in this space, really putting their their energy and time behind this. I think the good news, Quinn, is it it's eminently possible. I mean, you can mm. see we're going to be able to do this, and once we have it then not only investors can push firms to do the right thing, which I hope they will, but employees and customers can too. Well, and I, and I want to, I guess, come back to two things there, which is it's been really interesting the past uh, four or five months uh, to see um, many of these ESG-aimed uh, companies um, doing pretty darn well, and these indexes uh, that com- that these companies comprise d- doing pretty darn well. And, and, I'm not sure if that's uh, people grasping at straws, if that's people looking at the other incumbents and realizing they're not ready to to take these measures, and so they'll look elsewhere. Finally, are you know are we looking at investors who are finally a little more long term and aren't as worried about quarterly earnings reports, or is it these companies able to finally translate the definitions from the economy from from their accountants out into these quarterly earning reports uh, so that people are able to understand them better all the way down to the retail investor? I think it's mostly that the big tech companies look pretty good on ESG metrics and they've been doing very well. Mm. That said, there's a ton of research, and this is the subject of my scholarly work, suggesting that firms that authentically embrace purpose and couple that with a pragmatic strategy that's rooted in the heart of the firm, there are all kinds of reasons to suggest that they are going to be significantly more productive, creative, innovative, and resilient than more conventional firms. I mean, all the way from the psychology of meaning and triggering intrinsic motivation in the employee base to the importance of trust in complex organizations and Mm. to the ways that authentically purpose-driven firms are much better positioned to build trust, to the fact that if you're really authentically purpose-driven, you're looking at the whole vision, the whole scope of the world, and you can see how the world is changing. I mean, my personal belief is that we will struggle our way to a more sustainable and equitable society, and we will transform nearly every industry on the planet, and it's the purpose-driven firms that are out there trying to drive that that transformation. And for some of them, they're they're going to hit pay dirt and some of them are already doing so. So I I think the existing research is really clear that doing well on ESG metrics and embracing purpose does not hurt performance. I mean, we have cast iron, hundreds of studies that suggest that's true. What we're beginning to see in the data is if you can meld purpose to strategy, if you Mm. can really put it in place and act on it, And those places, we do have good measures of that, which is not yet ESG. But where we do have good measures of that, you're seeing significant outperformance. And and that's kind of the key, right? And and I don't think either of us are saying that this is an easy job. I mean, the, the... the, to turn this around, maybe uh, if you're a, a startup, sure. And I just had a wonderful conversation with the uh, the young woman who runs sustainability at Allbirds, who makes those incredibly comfortable shoes. Oh, sure. Uh, if, uh, they're fantastic. But her talking about how 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 sustainability and and ESG and things like that are are built in from from they're in every conversation about product and marketing and strategy and and hiring practices and such as such like that um and that's easier to do as you're getting started of course for the larger companies not so much i wonder if you could i loved the 
part of your book that talked about, and I just frankly forgotten about, uh, what JetBlue went through to get to where they are and, and how actually early they were uh, going about it. Sure. Oh, I love that story. Uh, Sophia Mendelssohn, who is the chief sustainability officer at JetBlue, is, is fabulous. So, so here's what happened. Uh, JetBlue was getting pressured because their passengers didn't like the fact they weren't recycling soda cans on the flight. <laughs> so Sophia was hired to run a recycling program. You know, yeah, you're the head of sustainability, but really we've got to get rid of these soda cans. Sure. So, um, you know, she put her head down. She's, she's wonderful. She put her head down. She said, okay, I get what's going on around here. I have to make money for the company. So, you know, she's very quiet. She's not very quiet, but she's very polite. She started talking to everyone in the organization, like, what's going on? What are your problems? How can I help? And she discovered fairly quickly that she could start saving the company money. So one of my favorite examples is she suggested that every plane take off with less water in the water tank. Because it turned out everyone was landing with a half full water tank and mm -hmm. it's expensive to fly all that water around because fuel sure. is the major expense. And so, you know, super simple idea, cut the water tank in half, great. Well, then she started to try something a little bit harder. Okay, well, I see that your major expense is fuel and volatility in the fuel price is driving volatility in the stock price. Why don't we go out and see if we can get anyone to give us biofuel-based bio jet fuel? And this is more than five years ago. I was going to say, it, this was this is not uh, like bleeding edge right now. This no, was no, no, no. pretty this ahead of the game. This is more than five years ago. And she went out and she signed a contract at the time. It was the largest contract ever signed for a flat price. And it was a good price. And everyone's like, whoa, you know, that this, this woman kind of knows what she's doing. That This is good. What what else can we do around here? And, uh, and she kept doing these kind of small things. And then the big, the big, Big and big effort that's in my book, but you know you should talk to her now. She there's no stopping her. I would She's love doing to. A, yeah, a ton I love of it. Things. But the big thing that's in my book is she went to investor relations and said, "Well, can I help you?" And they said, "Well, no, 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 no. You know, mm. it's sustainability. We don't care." And she said, "What's your problem?" And the investor relations people said, "The problem is people keep coming in and out of the stock." that we have mostly hedge funds and short-term oriented investors. And we want long-term oriented investors because we think we're building a firm which is all about treating our employees well, going the extra mile for our customers, and really building a different kind of airline. And, and we can't seem to tell that story. And she said, well, you know what you need? You need SASB. You need the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. I love it. And, you know, we need the measures. And so, you know, she was the first airline in SASB and she put the metrics in place and she trained the investor relations people like how to have those conversations. And and she's they love her. She changed the, you know, who knows what really changes the composition of the stock. But when you look at the data, it's very clear. The... Um, Number of long-term investors in the stock went up significantly. Volatility mm. of the stock went down. I mean, and, and everybody loved her. So her approach has been like, what can I do to make this company more successful? And what she says is that now she's done it. Now she has this language of sustainability and she has some things under her belt. Now she can begin to do much more. That just as the... Uh, 
your um, your friend at Allbirds says it's part of every conversation, but mm. that's beginning to happen at Jet at JetBlue, which that, again is not an easy thing. No, super hard. I'm talking about a six year journey, an incredibly energetic, thoughtful, and smart person. But she was working with a firm that whose values at Bedrock were pretty good, and I think sure. that's very helpful. How do you feel like the our fictional company X? can translate uh, their new purpose down into the ranks of of the workers? How do they earn that trust? Because it's not, you know, again, pivoting backwards, it's not just about performing ESG on the outside for for your earnings or or your bottom line or the markets, but internally as well. And, and part of being a, a happy employee and a productive employee means feeling uh, valued and feeling challenged and productive. And that obviously starts with, and a lot of places don't do this, actually paying them a living wage in money, but also in benefits like uh, parental leave and to challenge them uh, so that they can be invigorated by this new company-wide shared purpose, you know, spiritually, but also practically down down to the worker. How, how do we find that that best trickles down? So Please. to me, it's not about trickling down. It's absolutely fundamental. The phrase I use in the book is high road employment practices. This radical idea that you should treat everyone with dignity and respect as a full human being. One of the firms I I know of that does this talks about everyone is someone's precious child. Mm. You know, the full realization of everybody's humanity. And then you put in place a high-performance work system. What does that mean? For sure, it means a living wage and decent benefit and stable employment and significant investments in training. But it also means, because you can't afford to pay those increased wages unless you do the rest of this stuff, it means empowering the workforce, designing work so that having people on the front lines who are totally engaged with the work and able to make decisions really makes a difference to the business. So you can't just write a larger check. I mean, yes, that will get you some ways, but we know for all kinds of reasons it's not enough. You need to change the way you think about work and the way you manage, the way you talk to people. And how do you signal authenticity? (laughs) You don't behave like a bastard. Sure. You treat people as if they're really people. The threshold is quite low at this point. (laughs) Yes. And and what is so puzzling about this, Quinn, it's just so bizarre, is, you know, my great friend and colleague, uh, Zainab Ton, who's a professor at MIT and has this fabulous book called The Good Job Strategy. Mm-hmm. She has all this data showing that managing this way uh, gives you so many better outcomes. And, you know, then I went back when I was writing my book, and we we have data from 200 years ago and 100 years ago and 50 years ago. I mean, there was a plant in uh, Procter & Gamble that started running this work system, and it became so much more productive and so much more innovative that the management hid the data because they didn't think anyone would believe it. The the trouble is this way of working requires, whoa, can I say this on your podcast? You can say just about anything on this podcast. Um, Emotional vulnerability, Mm -hmm. self-knowledge, a belief in the underlying goodness and capacity of human beings. It requires not putting yourself first. I mean, the, the leaders who enable these kinds of firms, they're super people. Now, my experience has been you don't have to like change out the entire workforce. It it's people want to be managed this way. They really 
do. Mm-hmm. It's it's providing the space and um, deciding to make the investment. I mean, it's a tough transition. Uh, it takes a couple of years to put this in place before people really begin your, your really believe you're serious. You need to change how you think about the work, but uh, but it is absolutely possible. And oh my goodness, it's so much more fun when you're on the other side. Sure, but but, but I do imagine, like you said, and I, I don't want to discount it here that like you know, uh, making emotional vulnerability part of your company's mandate. Um, I imagine in in some cases, if not a, a number of cases, uh, that that's a tough one to quantify for for those accountants that we've realized uh, do hold the keys to changing this whole thing. Well, let me give you a an actual fact, which is very Please. helpful. It turns out that in the average industry, the top ten percent most productive firms are more than twice as productive as the bottom ten percent. That wow. is, they take the same inputs and they produce more than twice the output. I spent 20 years in windowless conference rooms at the National Bureau of Economic Research trying to make this result go away. We all thought it was measurement error, that somehow if you could control for differences in capital or differences in human capital, educational levels, where the managers were trained, maybe it was price cost margins and some firms had mini monopolies in the markets they they served controlling absolutely everything, the result does not go away. It's now a standard mm. result in uh, in modern economics. Empirically, the theorists are still like, what? What, what is right. this? You know, because it turns out that management really matters. Um, and, you know, my colleagues, John Van Rienen and Nick Bloom, who I think will get the Nobel Prize for this work, got measures of productivity and measures of management practice from thousands of firms across the whole world. And the result is absolutely there. And it's correlated with high-performing teams, with strong levels of communication, with high investments in training. I mean, it looks easy. If I showed you the list, you go, ah, no problem, just do it. You know, Toyota's been doing it forever. Oh, God, forever. Um, You look at that list, and then you watch firms try and do it. And without a real commitment to values and purpose and to people, you can't make it work. You have to have super high levels of trust in the organization. And, you know, our dominant management mode, which is, excuse me, we're in this for the investors, and most particularly we're in this for me, I'm in Mm -hmm. charge, the rest of you are minions, um, is not a great way to to manage uh, this way and uh, and gets you into all kinds of trouble. And that's, uh, of course... I, I I I try to keep coming back to the things that are built into now our society after this 30, 40 year push and our economies and our industries that these uh, these ideas and these measurables and these progressive companies are are fighting against. And there's things like uh, CEO pay is mostly tied to stock price and stock prices are, are for s- some of these companies, you know, out of control. And so, th- you know, the workers are making, n- you know, nowhere near uh the per, the same percentage as they were 25 years ago 30 years ago as as the the seaboard in these companies and that's that's hard when when all we see like you mentioned the tax cut uh from whatever God, what was that now i mean time means nothing at this point but is it two <laughs> two years ago and and you know what do we mostly get buybacks right you know the 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 american worker is still uh just suffering for the most part it seems like and the case i keep trying to make is this is a problem for business. You know, part of the issue is many senior people spend their times in a kind of bubble. Mm 
You know, they travel on jets, they meet people like them. When you meet them, often they're, you know, their heart's in the right place, they think they're doing the right thing, but, you know, it, it, it's burning out there. One of the things I've learned as I've you know, been talking about my book is how many people want to throw capitalism out the window. Sure. They say to me, you know, why should we reimagine it? Why don't we just get rid of it? And um, I tell groups of business people, you know, we keep going this way. Where we end up, you are not going to like. I mean, unchecked climate change is going to be an economic disaster, but sure. the social costs and political costs of continuing to flaunt your wealth and do nothing about people who are struggling to hold body and soul together and working just as hard as you are. Um, at much less interesting and engaging jobs, may I say. Sure. Um, you know, that this makes no sense. Now, of course, that means we have a collective action problem, right? Business as a whole would love it if we rebuilt our institutions and put the right rules in place, I think, I hope. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's trying to persuade business to act on that collective collective case that's, that, that's tricky, but I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible either. And, and again, I, I come back to a few things. One is which, again, it's hard to say to people like, look, we can make democracy work for you. And then going, well, I'm, I'm, you know, under 40 and it's never worked for me. And it's, I, I feel like it's important to point out to them like, yes, but this isn't democracy. That's why it hasn't worked for you is because this is the thing I'm trying to sell you is not the thing that you've been experiencing. It's something entirely different. And so it does take rebuilding it from, from the way it was uh, supposed to be, which is where you actually have a voice in the matter. And for instance, for a company, you actually, if you're a worker, uh, you know, you're part of a, uh, you know, the workers who get to add a few seats to the board instead of, um, you know, you look at something like Facebook where, where, Zuckerberg has basically unlimited power and the employees can be incredibly unhappy about privacy or about uh, climate or about all, all the racial artificial intelligence stuff that happens there. And it doesn't matter. They have no power. For sure. I, I think the good news, and I'm sure you do this, is there have been times and places when both capitalism and democracy have worked much better. The examples I like are uh, Germany post-World War II. Um, sure. I talk a lot about Denmark. But, you know, I talk about the U.S. in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Now, when you do that, you have to put a big asterisk. You have to say, you know, without all the racism and misogyny. But if you can sure. imagine. But at the time, General Motors had a stakeholder chart in their annual report. Here's sure. the value we're creating for stakeholders. The idea that the jobs they created should be good jobs was taken for granted. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that business should sit down with unions and, and try and work out a way that worked for everyone, you know, that worked very well. Now, when I say unions, people freak out for all kinds of good reasons. But when you look at Germany and how they've been able to use unions to force real investments in training and in apprenticeships, when you see average levels of wages, I mean, Germany is... Uh, is a manufacturing powerhouse. They've created so much value. And how did they do that? By making nearly everyone in that society fully trained and doing a job that they loved and really, really making a difference. And people say to me, well, you know, the Danes, well, Denmark's small and the Danish have this wonderful culture. They all love each other. And I say, well, you should read a bit more about late 19th century Danish history. Mm. You know, the Danes are just like the rest of us. They got to the place where they are now because in the late 19th century, they've just lost a major war. Go uh, capital and labor were completely at war with each other. The country was falling apart. And one of the business leaders said, wait, this is not working. Let's sit down 
with labour, with government, and try and build a society that works for us. And they've had 100 years to practice doing that. And my goodness, they're in a much better place. So yeah, it yeah, takes time. It, it <laughs> takes time. No, it's there's no magic bullet. We cannot snap our fingers. And we are badly off course here in the US. It's going to take a while to get back on track. I, I want to just talk for a minute again because I, I don't want to I I do I, I I want to say clearly like I do believe that that these things are possible um in part because of the ticking clock these are not optional uh, things anymore uh, rebuilding capitalism and rebuilding democracy they have to happen or or it's kaput I mean we're already going to have mass suffering as it is um and a lot of places already are in that place where we're seeing you know we have to pick the cities we're going to abandon et cetera et cetera. But I do always want to be sort of objective and in, in, in especially in our sense of trying to stand in for our audience. And I, I woke up, <laughs> this is something nobody should ever say, but I woke up this morning thinking about the Koch brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, when we see everyone marching in the streets recently and and we talk about these companies that on the other hand that are that that are doing their best and standing by their workers. Um, but you've mentioned before, and again, I apologize, I can't remember if it's in one of your papers or or a speech or in the book. But how how one of the traits uh, of an extractive political economy is influential but opaque interest groups. Is that did I get that correct? Absolutely, you did. I, I I've kind of always felt, but even more so than ever these days, I really feel like most Americans don't understand how pervasive that is here, and and how little control the young American voter has. You know what they're really fighting against if you don't mind just i've been trying to work this out in my head all morning uh sort of how comprehensive the system is and and at any point please just say that's in that's incorrect or sure sure i mean so i have good news and bad news please the good news is most americans have emotionally a very good sense of what's going on when you ask americans should we take money out of politics you get bizarrely high levels of agreement regardless of party. Mm-hmm. They, they know how corrupt this, are, this is. That number I gave you, 70% the system is rigged, people know. Sure, right. Sure. And like you said, that was before COVID. Right, that's, that's before COVID. So that's the good news. Here's the bad news. Oh my goodness, we're in a tough place. You know, I, I uh, talked to Anand Geriadis, the guy who wrote um, Winners Take All. Sure. And he said, Rebecca, you know, plutocrats got a plute. What are you talking about? So a couple of ways to think about this. First, I am not optimistic in the sense that if you ask me, what are the odds we're going to solve this and we're going to be fine? I'd say pretty small. Mm-hmm. If we just, you know... Things just continue to roll. I told you, I was the Eastman Kodak professor of management. I know how hard it is to change firms. And this is when they, they're looking death in the face. They still mm-hmm. can't get themselves to change. Sure. So I understand that, but I am hopeful. Mm. So why? COVID has shown us, I, I love your uh, description from Ed Young's article. You know, it's soaked into all the cracks. COVID has soaked into all the cracks that were already mm. there. We can see what's happening. The reason I continue to believe that it's important to talk about business as part of the solution is that it's really important to split the elite. 
If we're always going to have a group of people with infinite money who think the free market is the only way to go and anything else will make things worse, and maybe they actually believe it, and mm. it makes them incredibly rich, and they're spreading that money around to reinforce their position. But there are thousands of business people and hundreds of CEOs of very large organizations who can see that where we're going is the road to nowhere. I think, you know, I was talking to a bunch of CEOs in January before COVID, maybe 90 people in the room. There were two women. When I first walked into the room, I, I lost it for a moment. And I said, are there no women in this room? Which you're never supposed mm. to say. But I actually sure. said it because like, it was so male. It was so yeah. old. It was so white. And I started talking about climate change. And I was teaching a case about, um, I think it was about Unilever in the tea business. Mm. And, um, you know, you can make money and do well and purpose is the future. And I mm. promise you, everyone in that room was sitting back with their arms crossed, you know, yeah, yeah. When can we get on to the next lecture? And about half, this was so bad that about halfway through, I just lost it. And I said, tell me, what do your children think about climate change? Mm. And everyone in the room lit up. They leant forward and they started talking with another part of their mind. It was so interesting. And yes, it's a huge issue. And my children are after me all the time and they want me to do things at the firm. And what can I do? And once I got them there, then we could have a real conversation. It, it's if we can persuade a significant share of business people that it is in their interest to do the right thing and put some daylight between them and the shareholder value maximization at any cost, I think that will be hugely helpful. My reading, when I, when I looked through history to try and find times when business had really made a difference, it was when a portion of the business elite said, okay, we'll stop fighting. We will sit down and work with you. So, of course, we need a massive political and social movement. Absolutely. Mm. We need to change out our politicians. Every one of us needs to be as engaged as we can be as consumers, as neighbors, as voters, as, as employees in pushing for this change. That, that's what will really drive things. But to have a group of business people say, you know, how can I help? And, mm. and here the strategy faculty member in me says, if we can persuade them to begin to build our business model on doing the right thing, they have a strong economic interest in insisting that everybody else does too. Sure. So I think there's a virtuous circle here that we could get going. But again, you know, <laughs> I wake up thinking about the Coke brothers. Uh, it's, it's not great. It's not great. And, you know, let's talk about Mexico and let's talk about China and let's talk about Russia. I mean, it seems to be the history of the human race that the rich and the powerful try and grab everything for themselves. What yeah. do we know about what, what fights back against that? It's organized power. It's the rest sure. of us getting together and saying, this is not okay. So that's what we need to do. Organize. And, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> thousand, throws down the microphone, walks out. Um, <laughs> I, a few, I guess a few things on that, uh, on that note, which is it, it feels like I'm a big fan of, and I've been asked a lot in, in, in recent months uh, as people kind of go like, oh my God, what the hell is happening with the world? I should have listened to on climate change and now there's COVID. Like, can you come coach or consult or whatever as sort of a generalist, uh, you know, place trying to connect the dots as much as possible. 
But uh, I haven't done that because I'm trapped at home with my children. But it, I do believe in taking the facts that are on the ground and you can extrapolate a little bit into the near future um, to things that are are, are most likely going to happen. Again, it's all probabilities at that point. And then we don't have a whole hell of a lot of an idea past that. But I do believe, like you said, of course, we need to overturn democracy and get everyone new into power and young people and smart people and, and, and diverse people. But business is more powerful than it's ever been. So we have to use that, like you said. And and I do believe, um, you know, if you take, uh, you know, a company like Apple, which is nowhere near from perfect, but if if they will, you know, what was it a few weeks ago said uh, they're going to go carbon neutral by... I don't, I don't remember what it was, 20, 2035, maybe 2050. That is tr- truly an incredible undertaking because of their supply lines. And if we can have more companies like that doing that, I mean, it feels like, you know, all the, the associations of mayors that stepped up in the cities and, and, and such when, when we backed out of the Paris Agreement and Trump got elected, who said like, well, then fine, then cities will do it or states will do it. Um, it feels like you know, if, if companies are going to be this powerful, then we need to push them to not to fill in the gaps, but to, you know, use their power for good, I guess, to go back to Spider-Man. It, it's not that business can fix it. it. It's not that we can say to CEOs, okay, pubs-driven firms, you've got this. Absolutely not. Right. But I do think if we had some section of the business community really focused on these issues, People would experience what it means to be properly treated to work in these kinds of firms. They would start demonstrating, they are demonstrating the kinds of business models that will work to create great jobs and address environmental problems and make money. So that then politicians, when they come to drive these kinds of changes, can point to them and say, look, don't tell me I'm going to put you out of business. Firm X is paying wages Y and benefits Z. And firm Alpha has cut their carbon emissions to zero and they're doing fine and here's how to do it. And then, and business is, I mean, I, I'm on the board of a nonprofit called Ceres, and mm-hmm. I've seen how politicians react when business people walk into the room in a good way and say, we need carbon regulation, we need decent education, we need a reasonable healthcare system. It's very helpful to have business in moving in this direction. And I, you know, so many people spend so much time at work. Imagine that at work, the people around you are talking about the big problems and how they can be fixed and sure. really sharing the, the data. That, that I think, could make a real difference. And, and that just, to me, comes down more and more to, especially with this, these younger generations, listening to your workers, right? And and making remaking the American worker a stakeholder in the business and the industry and our economy. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I mean, I talk in the book about employee-owned firms, which mm-hmm. is not a form for everyone, but is incredibly powerful. And we know from the data that when an employ- a firm is genuinely employee-owned and controlled, whoa, wages go up, wealth goes up, and the business does just fine. It, that there's so much energy and excitement and power in, uh, you know, I hate the word ordinary people in us, sure. in us. No, but but it's true, and but, I think it's important because uh, you know the the you know America especially these days um, has become a system of 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 castes, and and again coming back to the the Koch brothers, uh, they haven't just. And, and and so many others like them. They're just sort of the the figurehead, the bad final boss uh, of of this dark money side of it. But they haven't just 
campaign to take everything for themselves. They have they have outright in in such a comprehensive way spent decades reducing the status and the power of the ordinary American, literally from from birth, right? right. Um, and and of course, again, everyone is affected, but but especially Black people and Latinx people. Oh. The average American, right, is is born healthy, less healthy than other developed countries on average, but uh, because our healthcare system is a nightmare, but better than much of the world. But their parents can't take paid leave from from their hourly job, so probably only one parent works, so they can't send them to preschool because we don't have universal preschool. But they can go uh, to public elementary school, which is probably not that good because. People like the Koch brothers have destroyed public education in availability and quality. So now that student is less prepared for higher education, right? And less prepared for for knowledge work, which seems to be the only thing that that pays. But they've also funded these efforts to cut taxes everywhere. So again, the corporations have have spent so much more on buybacks than on their workers that that wages haven't gone up to match healthcare mm-hmm. or to match, Co- college funding, and you—you so, you haven't mentioned actively smashing unions. Of course, or no. I research mean, suggests that you know, without unions, it's super hard to to keep wages, or buying politicians who would keep minimum wage laws low. Exactly. Or um, turning a blind eye. I mean, to, this, this is a crazy thing. I'm, I'm British, and when I first learned that every town funds its own educational system, I was like. You're kidding, right? Oh, God. Because yeah. that means if you're born in a poor place, you have crap education. Yeah, and it just <laughs> how does that how does that get better? It doesn't, right? It doesn't. Um, but yeah. it also it's crazy because oh my God, it, it's like the, so you've got all these the reduced taxes and then the uh, the tax cuts of a couple years ago, but these have been going on for so long. That means uh, reduced government income, right? If we're again we're coming back to the ordinary person, we just did a conversation right. on how um, one of your fellow Brits. Um, uh, did this incredible groundbreaking investigation on how drinking water is unaffordable for so many people in America. Drinking water, the one thing that everybody needs, right? And part of that is because there's reduced government income because there's reduced taxes. And so our infrastructure is a complete nightmare. So this average American worker, the ordinary person you mentioned, and and I swear this ties into like how to reform business, um, they're, they're less educated. They're less able to participate in capitalism because they can't afford any of these stocks. They eat less healthy food and drink less clean water. They stay in their job because the only way to get health care. Right. I mean, Obamacare is a mess. The only, the only way to get health care is get to have a job and to pay off their student loan debt. So they're not getting ahead or anything. Like you said, unions don't exist. So they can't actually fight for higher wages or benefits in any way. And all the politicians are uh, totally bought already. It's and, I mean, and, we have these incumbents for 60 years. And, so, and listen to what you're saying. Business has shot itself in the foot. Because then when you turn to the workforce and, you know, half the workforce is going to be people of color very quickly. Half the consumer base is going to be people of color very quickly. But if you've turned a blind eye to the fact that, you know, so many people in this country have no chance of of making good or building a decent life for themselves. Like what kind of what kind of country do we have? What kind of workforce do we have? What kind of market do we have? This is so short sighted. It is. It makes me so heartbroken and so angry. I hardly know what to do. You started a podcast. I wrote a book. 
Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I, I always joke. And of course, we're very proud of our work here and we're very proud of like any difference we can make. But I always joke like my children are going to grow up and say, Dad, when the world was on fire, what did you do? I'm going to say, well, I started a podcast. <laughs> um, but no, look, I want to turn it back to where, where you were. Uh, forgive my long, my long rant there, which is what I literally woke up this morning thinking about. But this, this system has been designed, to be clear, by guys who look like me for 100 years. To, it has been designed to reduce the American citizen and worker's role in democracy and capitalism. But so, these workers, they don't want to leave. I mean, some want to leave America. Most don't want to leave. Uh, for the people of color, they cannot. They want it to work, right? right. For her, uh, for her parents, for her children. One of my favorite conversations um, was was with uh, the the now editor uh, of the Boston Globe opinion section, uh, Bina Venkataraman, who said, uh, we have to find a way to be better ancestors, right? And we're counting on this next generation because <laughs> all the boomers are about to retire, right? right? But if this worker, as, as, excuse me for one second, as fucked up as everything is, if she gets a job at one of these new purpose-driven companies we've talked about today, she will live an entirely different life from paying her bills to workings towards practical solutions for water or climate change or clean energy right. than the one described above. And, and to me, that is why business can take this leadership oh, role. So That's I mean, why I do this work. Because, you know, the system is one thing, but if you work at a firm and you have some power, you have the opportunity to change the lives of, you know, 20 people, I'll take it. 50 people, 1,000, 10,000. Sure. Really, um, you said it. These jobs are quite different jobs. And it's not just the pay and benefits. It's the respect. It's the power. It's the yeah. knowledge that you're making a difference where you work. You know, people need dignity as much as they need food. Now, I'm, I'm not knocking food, and, you know, no, not but, living no, hand to important. mouth. But, but, you know, the whole package is what's needed to make a whole human being. And we can do that. We have the technology. We have the resources. We have the wealth. Of course. I mean, we, we do. It's just that only a few people have the wealth. Would you say to that young woman now in 2020, five months into COVID with the climate crisis barking down our back, but knowing what you know about the ESG that has these companies and these indexes that have proven all the studies that show that these companies do better and that more of them are coming and that there's from, from JetBlue to Allbirds, would you say this young worker, is she going to get the opportunity to work at one of these companies? And what will it take from the rest of us to, to help her do that? Statistically, it's going to be hard. We're still at the beginning. Maybe 5% of companies, maybe 10%. Um, but it's it's not zero. So um, I think in her lifetime, she will, odds are very good, she'll get that chance. And I'm doing everything I can to increase the odds. And I know thousands of people who are trying to do that too. I, it really feels to me as if COVID may have opened a door that we can no longer kid ourselves that things are okay, they're not okay. And so many people are moving and trying to make change. And we can see the path. And it's profitable. I, I think we can do this. Mm -hmm. I, I hope so. On that note, I want to talk about these specific action steps that our listeners can can take to support this mission of yours that is that is might be the only mission that's worthwhile uh, because we have we have to save the place. And as we like to say, you know, some semblance of using their voice, their vote, and their dollar. Again, one of our overarching goals is to shine a light as practically as we can on where we need to go 
as a people. So what would you say are maybe some of the, the big but actionable and specific questions that our listeners should be asking of their representatives? And I guess in that case, uh, you know, as, as shareholders as well of the companies that they work for. I was going to go as shareholders and employees as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you're a shareholder, push your firms and your investment managers to invest in purpose-driven firms, which have a proven track record and good, clear measures. If you work at a firm, look around. Sophia at JetBlue changed the whole firm. And in the beginning, she was just the lady hired to get rid of the soda cans. Uh, many firms are very badly managed, and they would be hugely improved if they were more purpose-driven and thinking more about the common good. So do what you can at work. Uh, join together with friends. Um, as a neighbor, pull together. You must say this all the time on this show. But, you know, a friend of mine uh, founded an NGO called Mothers Out Front. Okay. Uh, which was all about addressing climate change because she thought mothers had a real interest in the long-term health of the climate and they're passionate about their kids. And mm. what she has found is that 20 moms showing up to hearing after hearing make an enormous difference. You know, her group identifies gas leaks, works with uh, regulators to insist that the gas companies fix those gas leaks because gas is just methane. It's a horrible greenhouse gas and it's leaking out across every city in the country. Um, you know, insist that your, um, your representatives put in place decent regulation to make sure we head off climate change. Um, I'm sure you've had other shows where you've talked about the details, but essentially it should be expensive to emit to burn fossil fuels. And as soon sure. as we do that, we can really tran transition the economy. But, you know, insist on minimum wage legislation, on paid sick leave, on decent childcare, on the right to unionize and to get together with, with other people so that you can argue for your rights. Um, and insist, please, the most important, on free elections. Let's get money out of politics. Let's make sure that gerrymandering is illegal. Let's enforce the Voting Rights Act. Let's make sure that everybody has a vote. Because all the policy ideas could give you around, I could give you around education and health <laughs> and so on will mean nothing if we don't have the politicians in place who can elect them, if we don't find a way to fight back against the power of money. And uh, I'm a big fan of a wealth tax myself. Perhaps it's okay that Mr. Gates himself is rich beyond the dreams of avarice. He did create a lot of value, but I'm not at all clear why his children should be that rich. Uh, to be fair, Mr. Gates shares my opinion, but but excuse me, why are the Walmart children the, the between them richer than the bottom half of the American population? What sure. did they do? Why mm -hmm. should they have that much power? I really don't get that. Yeah, I, I'm firmly with you. And again, I think it all comes down to, look, voting still works, but it's pretty damn hard to come by at this point. And 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 again, you want to go back to the Koch brothers, like one of the biggest things they founded. I mean, how difficult it is right now for a black person, a brown person, a Latinx person to, to vote, um, all the way from getting time off at their hourly job to having, you know, four voting locations where there used to be 400. It's a national disgrace. I mean, it's a disgrace. And just it feels like it, just a CEO step up and say LGBTQX discrimination is not acceptable. Every business leader in the country should be standing up and saying voter suppression is completely unacceptable. 
Yeah. Um, uh, it just feels, I mean, and it's crazy. It does feel like we're in, you know, we're, we're on the plains of Mordor here a little bit in, in the sense that, uh, in the sense that, you know, it's 2020 and redistricting and gerrymandering is on the line and, and climate change is on the line. And we're fighting with one hand behind our backs because uh, all these people can't get to their voting locations or they've been stopped from registering to voting, but we have to win it. We have and, to and, win it anyway. And, and yeah. what's, and the thing I come back to is we, we have to win it because we have to, but we have to win it also because should we win it, there is s- such an incredible future ahead. Um, the, the things that are possible as far as, like, there's so much of, of, of the climate crisis and carbon that is baked in, of course, but the, the things that are possible from clean energy to, to medicine oh. are, are really astounding, and, and we just have to get there. It's amazing. So... Yeah, I mean, we need to change the current administration. We really need to change the current administration. But we have the science and the technology to build a world that works for everyone. We'll never be able to heal the planet completely, but my goodness, we can go a very long way. Um, I was a professor at MIT for 20 years. The technology I see is out of sight. If we can find a way to put it into place, we can build a truly just and sustainable world. I'm with you. I'm there. I'm ready to do it. Um, <laughs> listen, uh, Rebecca, I, will, I know you got to run soon. I won't keep you for, for more than another couple minutes. Um, if you have any other, first of all, thank you uh, for all of your time and, and everything you're doing in your incredible book. Um, if you have any uh, recommendations for other world-changing humans such as yourself we should talk to, please feel free to send them to me. We always love recommendations. Last couple questions, and then I will get you out of here. I swear they're, they're, they're quite quick. Rebecca, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? It's so mundane. The first time one of my students sent me an email saying, Rebecca, I used what you taught me in my company and it made a real difference. That was like the best moment. And there's still the best moments. Um, when people tell me, that something I said was actually useful. That's pretty special. I mean, uh, I'm 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 the son of a teacher and uh, of, a, of a public school teacher, and and you know, you you really can have all of the influence in the world in the most wonderful way. Yeah, uh, doing that. Um, Rebecca, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? It's hard to choose. I've met <laughs> so many amazing people on this on this journey I'm on. I think the person who's had the most impact on me is a British economist called Kate Rayworth. Okay. Um, she wrote a book called Donut Economics. Oh, I love that book. I love that book. I was on a panel with her. She is totally amazing. Um, there's something she says I don't agree with, but her general sense that like, excuse me, we have to completely redo the structure of the economy. We cannot go on cutting down all the forests, poisoning the oceans and treating people like dirt. It's not going to work. She's so direct. She's so funny. She captures the ideas so quickly and so well. And she's really given me a shot in the arm, which is to say what I really believe, even if it's a bit radical and people are going to disagree, um, because we don't have any time. And we have to change the uh, change the world. So, um, so I love meeting Kate. It was just twenty minutes on a shared panel, but but that's what I really remember as I look back. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'm I'm so glad she's enabled you to go forward with your sword of fire um to to tear into this this incredible issue. Uh on the subject of the ticking clock, Rebecca, what is your self-care these days? What do you uh what do you do when you're like that's enough fighting for a good world today? <laughs> I'm reading all the Harry Potter in sequence. Ah, nice. Watching the movies when I get to the end of the book with my husband and son. And we are having so much fun. Um, that's my my, uh, my seven year old's doing the same thing right now. <laughs> well, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> Please don't be. I just reread them a month ago. <laughs> There's something about stepping into a controllable world and such a wonderful world and a world where good wins in the end. So uh, ah, it's just nice. So that's my major self care project at the moment. I love it. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I exclusively read fiction at night these days because, you, like you said, it is a controllable world and it is not this one. Last question. Um, if you could send, we have an incredible list of book recommendations from past guests. They're all up on Bookshop. People can find that in our show notes. But the question we usually use to guests to, to uh, drive that recommendation is, Rebecca, if you could send one book uh, to the president of the United States, what book would that be? Why Nations Fail by Daron Asamoglu. Perfect. Perfect. We will add it to it, and I'm sure he will, uh, you know, not understand it. But that is a good one. Uh, Rebecca, where can our listeners follow you online? I'm Recap Rebecca on Twitter, and I'm uh, active on LinkedIn. So you can just find me, Rebecca Henderson, on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Uh, Rebecca, I cannot thank you enough for your time today and your thought um, and all the work you've put into your years of teaching and, and this uh, book, this this great sum of all the parts um, that makes uh, all of your 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 wisdom and and the the, the operable wisdom um, so much more accessible to so many more folks. Um, and I'm excited to use it as a blueprint going forward. Wow. Um, thank you for your fine words, kind words, Quinn. You know, in the end, none of us are going to make any difference. We're all just pebbles stardust, stardust in the wind, but it's pebbles that start avalanches. So um, I, I think we can change the world. Thank you very much for all you do. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. I'll call you after the world is saved. It'll be great. <laughs> we'll have a party. Take It'll care. be fantastic. Take care, Rebecca. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Uh, just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.